Well, it is that time once again for another edition of Then and Now with Ed Stevens joining us here in the virtual studio, continuing our study today on Paul's third missionary journey. Stay with us. Let's give a hearty welcome to Ed Stevens joining us in the virtual studio. My friend, how are you doing? Real good. Good, good. So tell me, we have the wind blowing by today. I think I've seen Winnie the Pooh, and I think I've seen Mary Poppins blow by with her umbrella. Uh, what's going on over there weather-wise? Oh, it's real nice and gentle. No, hardly any breeze at all. Uh, yeah. But it's kind of cloudy, overcast, not, not a lot of sun, nice. and very warm. It's steamy out there. It's 74 degrees. That's a heat wave at this time of year. I guess. Now, uh, the the Pacific Ocean, we have a west wind blowing in, and it's going to be interesting to see if it brings any rain with it. We did have some rain on Thursday and Friday and uh, went out to Temecula to for our Friday night fellowship that we're doing. And it was kind of funny because we showed up at the fellowship on Friday night, and Madeline had, like, rain gear on. <laughs> The previous week, she was in flip-flops, and uh, we get out there, and the sky was crystal clear. The weather was nice, and they looked at Maddie, and they go, okay, last week, flip-flops. This week, rain boots. What's going on, guys? <laughs> I'm like, I, I guess I forgot. We're three counties apart. And uh, sure enough, uh, you know, we were prepared for rain, and we got there, and there wasn't any in sight. Well, you know, that's supposed to be pronounced uh, Temecula, not Temecula, right? Okay, well, then, pardon me. Actually, we were in Murrieta. <laughs> Uh, Temecula is right next door to Murrieta, but anyways, Temecula. Okay. Tem- Temecula. Must be an Indian if, thing. If you're from Texas, you know, that's the way the Texans say it. Oh, gotcha. Well, Ed, you know what? Why don't you go ahead and fill our fill the listening audience in a little bit as to where we're going to be going today. Paul's third missionary journey in the book of Acts, I believe, chapters 19 and 20? That's right. All right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and turn things over to you, my friend, and let you do what you do best. Thank you so much. Okay, in the last lesson, we covered the first part of Paul's third missionary journey where he revisited the Galatian and Phrygian regions. And the book of Acts there, of course, says that, that he was strengthening the disciples there in the Galatian and Phrygian region. Now, it doesn't indicate that he spent an awful long time there, but it must have been a month or more uh, of time because he spends three years in Ephesus right after that, and the whole journey only took four years, so he could not have spent very much time in Galatia and Phrygia regions, but maybe a month or two, three months at the most, strengthening the disciples. We mentioned that Apollos, who was an Alexandrian Jew by birth and was a very eloquent speaker and teacher, uh, book of Uh, Acts tells us he was mighty in the scriptures, and he came to Ephesus after Paul had been there on his second journey, and it was while Aquila and Priscilla were still there in Ephesus, and he was only acquainted with the baptism of John, as were the dozen disciples whom Paul encountered at Ephesus afterwards. What I find really extremely interesting is that this dozen disciples were rebaptized, and this implies, of course, that baptism into the name of the Lord Jesus was extremely important. This does not harmonize, however, with the attitudes of many postmodernist Christians today who have cast off baptism and other first-century church doctrines and practices, and so uh furthermore it's interesting that these disciples there in Ephesus who were rebaptized it's not for sure that they were jewish it seems like they might have been uh and the reason why is because they were familiar with John the Baptist and his baptism that implies that they had been to judea uh and there discovered uh John the Baptist preaching but it doesn't necessitate that because they could have heard about John the Baptist through Apollos. And, uh, but Apollos probably would not have been baptizing 
Gentiles at that point. Uh, but there's just a lot of speculation, so we don't know for sure whether these 12 disciples who had only been baptized by John's baptism were Jews or Gentiles. We really don't know for sure. It seems like they were probably Jewish, and uh, that would be the reason why then Paul would have them rebaptized when he came. But it's interesting that it was very important for them to be rebaptized, and that doesn't jive very well with modern day uh, ideas that baptism is of no significance for us and that uh, we can just let it slide right on by without any uh, necessity of obeying that. Uh, in the first century, it's very clear that baptism was a very, very important part of the church's doctrine and practice. And so we need to pay close attention to that uh, and make sure we're not uh, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. We've already noticed in the past that baptism and the Lord's Supper were both commanded to Gentiles, not just to Jews. This is extremely significant since Paul was very adamant about not binding upon the Gentiles anything which was destined to pass away at 70 AD. Now, I think that point just escapes the notice of most preterists today. They don't think about that, but Paul was the um, advocate for Gentile freedom, and he would not allow the Gentiles to be bound under anything that was destined to pass away at 70 AD. And so the fact that he commanded Gentiles to be baptized and observe the Lord's Supper tells us something. It tells us that that those were not just Jewish things. Baptism and the Lord's Supper were something that was associated with both Jews and Gentiles. And therefore, uh, since it's bound on the Gentiles as well, it must be something that would be uh, a part of the church, not only in the first century, but even after the first century, as the church rolls on down through the generations and ages of the age to come. And so... I think that's something that we need to uh, pay a little more attention to and not just gloss over uh, because baptism was evidently not destined to pass away at 70 AD. The jots and tittles of the law, however, were bound only upon Jewish Christians and only until the law passed away at 70 AD. But the law was not bound upon the Gentile Christians. Therefore, it seems obvious that the things Paul did bind upon the Gentile Christians must have been something that was destined to continue in the church of all generations to come. Furthermore, it was not just baptism and the Lord's Supper which was commanded to the Gentile Christians. The organizational structure of the church, including a plurality of elders and deacons, seems also to have been the pattern that Paul followed in all the churches that he established in the Gentile world. The implication is quite strong that Paul was setting a precedent and a pattern for the church to follow in all ages to come. Now, here's some scriptures, I think, that will help us see that that must be the case. Look with me here in Acts chapter 14, and uh, we'll notice the pattern that Paul was following as he established these new churches. In Acts chapter 14, uh, on his, uh, what is it, first missionary, uh, first, first missionary journey, not his second or third, but his first missionary journey, he's establishing this pattern that he follows throughout the rest of his journeys. In Acts 14, 23, he says, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now, notice this. On his very first missionary journey, Paul is, a st is appointing elders for those churches. Uh, every church, it says, in every church. So that was the pattern that he followed from that point on. You was, you'll see that same idea of a pattern over in 1 Corinthians, uh, which was written in about uh, 57 A.D., and First uh, Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. And notice he's talking to the church there at Corinth. 
and he has all their problems that they're guilty of division and and uh, all kinds of immoral problems and church uh, problems. And notice in verse 14, it says, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. And then verse 17, 1 Corinthians four seventeen. notice what Paul says to the Corinthians. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Notice the pattern there. There's a pattern that Paul is teaching to every church everywhere that he goes. He doesn't just play favorites and teach one church one thing and another church another thing. You know, it's, it's all the same. He's got a pattern of doctrine, and he refers to that in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy as well uh, when he talks about Timothy maintaining or retaining that standard or pattern of sound words that he had delivered to Timothy and the other co-workers that worked with Paul and traveled with him on their missionary journeys. And so what we're seeing here is that there was a pattern of first century doctrine and practice. And that pattern was given not just to the Jewish Christians, but to all the churches everywhere Paul went, uh, especially the Gentile churches. And those patterns, uh, since they were given to the Gentiles, imply that they were to be continued after 70 AD. They were a pattern for the kingdom that was about to arrive. All the teaching of Jesus and the apostles about the kingdom and what it would be like when the kingdom arrived at 70 AD, all of that teaching is uh, now applicable to us. It was only applicable in a first fruit sort of way or as a down payment earnest or pledge before 70 AD. But now, after 70 A.D., it's fully applicable to us, uh, even more than it was to the first century. And we see here in the book of Acts how, how applicable it was. Uh, Apostle Paul was already binding it upon the Gentiles. And uh, so if it was applicable to them as a down payment earnest or pledge, it surely is applicable to us in a full, uh, uh, fulfilled way for us today. So I wanted to point that out as we uh, get into the book of Acts here is that uh, we're dealing with things that Paul is teaching to the Gentiles, which evidently he intended for the churches of all ages to follow and practice uh, because he's giving it to Gentiles and he wouldn't do that unless it was something that was intended to continue alone uh, beyond 70 A.D. Well, we're pretty much through with the second missionary journey of Apostle Paul, and I want to start dealing with the, the third missionary journey. Uh, and here on this third missionary journey, we see uh, three more of, of uh, Paul's epistles written, uh, and this will make a total of, of six altogether that he has written uh, after he finishes the third missionary journey. Uh, while he's on this uh, third journey, uh, he'll write First and Second Corinthians and the book of Romans. We have noted in the past that Acts does not give a lot of details about other Roman and Jewish events that were happening while Paul was on his various missionary journeys. For those events, we have to go to the other contemporary historians, uh, such as Josephus and Tacitus and Suetonius, and Hegesippus and Papias, etc. Those are really good sources for us to help us understand what was happening. And I'll be drawing from Josephus especially as we look at some of those things that are occurring in the background while Paul is on his third missionary journey and what kind of influence and impact they had on Paul and his work, uh, if any. Uh, we'll try to notice those as we go through. Uh, the closer we get, however, to 70 A.D., 
the more important all of those Jewish and Roman events become. In the past, uh, they've only had very slight impact. Uh, but now we're going to notice that they're beginning to have more and more influence on Paul, especially because he's trying to preach the gospel to a lot of Gentiles and bring the Gentiles fully into acceptance in the church. And as things heat up in Judea and the Jews begin to hate the Romans and the Gentiles more and more by the day, we'll notice uh, that the church there in Judea as well begins to be torn on their relationship with the Gentiles. And even when Paul went to visit them at the end of his third journey, he gets arrested there. And we have to wonder uh, if some of the Jewish Christians there didn't have something to do with that because uh, they were very much opposed to his uh, teaching out among the uh, Jewish Christians in the diaspora. And they uh, questioned everything he had to say. And we're going to look more at the events in the background that caused, I believe, that kind of, of resistance against Apostle Paul at the end of his third journey. But we're going to see some of those events right now uh, in this lesson especially and in the next lesson as well. Uh, things are heating up not only for the Christians, but also for the Jews in Palestine. And we're going to see those events really begin to put pressure on the church, and especially on Apostle Paul and his efforts to uh, convert the Gentiles. And these events form the background behind all the things that we're looking at here in the book of Acts and show how that all the predictions made by Jesus were literally fulfilled when he talks about wars and rumors of wars and uh, being betrayed by your own fellow countrymen and being persecuted, etc. All those things are beginning to be fulfilled literally here uh, in these last uh, 10 or 15 chapters of the book of Acts. Uh, the closer we get, of course, the more important all those events become, and they... Uh, they show that, that, that the birth pangs that Jesus was talking about are beginning to become more frequent and more intense. Uh, uh, women, as they're getting ready to give birth to a child, uh, their labor pains become more frequent and more intense. And that's what we see here in all these events. We're seeing wars and rumors of wars become more frequent and more intense. For him, from here onwards, as we follow Paul on his journeys, we'll be emphasizing how Paul was following a plan, which he claims was providentially arranged and directly revealed to him by Jesus. And that plan was, of course, number one, to plant new churches among the Gentiles, not just the Jews, and number two, to appoint elders and deacons for them in every church, as we noticed in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, and 1 Corinthians 4, 17, as I teach everywhere in every church. And he also indicates that he was doing all this by direct revelation and, and uh, inspiration and command of Christ himself. Uh, he was also writing these inspired epistles to guide them. It, it wasn't just his opinions that he was writing in these letters, uh, his words were considered to be Scripture itself, not only by the churches, but by Apostle Peter. In Second Peter chapter 3, Peter talks about Paul. He says, and Paul also in all of his letters speaks in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do the rest of the Scriptures. Uh, Peter lumps Paul's writings, all of his epistles. Evidently, Peter had a complete collection of all 14 of them, and he speaks of them as being a complete collection, implying that Paul had died just before he wrote Second Peter, and therefore uh, Paul was not still writing. He uses wrote to you in past tense, uh, implying that Paul had already died and that 
he had now a a complete collection of Paul's writings. And he lumps those on the same level playing field with the rest of the scriptures. So Paul's writings here in his epistles are scripture. And Paul was very much aware of that fact himself because he says, if anybody rejects what I'm saying in this epistle, he might as well be rejecting the the word of God because that's what it is. He says they're rejecting the very word of God because that's what he was writing in his epistles. So Peter and Paul both were very much aware that these epistles that were being written by these inspired uh, apostles and their followers uh, were were scripture, just like the Old Testament books were, and were considered to be scripture and inspired. Okay, and also one of the fourth things that uh, Apostle Paul was doing uh, as a result of his direct revelation from Christ was to instruct his fellow workers and teach these things, uh, or how to teach these things, to faithful men who would be able to teach others also. And I think we need to look at this text. This is another one of those texts that points off into the future beyond 70 A.D., I believe. Uh, At least it's that way understood by most interpreters uh, who have carefully looked at it. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, This is Paul's last letter that he wrote uh, just before he was killed in the Neronic persecution, sometime in, in 64 A.D. probably. And he makes notice here that he knows he's about to be killed in the last chapter, Second Peter or Second Timothy chapter 4. Um, he knows, uh, verse 6, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. Uh, This is going to be his last communication with his disciples. And he's writing it to his most important disciple, evidently, Timothy, uh, who was in charge of the church there at Ephesus, one of the largest and most uh, important churches that Paul established. And notice what Paul says to Timothy after he had instructed him on what to teach uh, the disciples there at Ephesus. He says, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, that's very interesting here that Paul is is telling Timothy in Ephesus in 64 A.D., just as the Neronic persecution was starting, he tells Timothy to make sure you get this information that I have given to you, get that into the hands of many other faithful men who will be able to teach others also after them. Paul is very concerned to get this information into the hands of lots of people so that it will survive the coming cataclysm that he knows is about to arrive. It's already begun. He's already been arrested. He knows his death is imminent. And he's making sure that that his gospel and the things that he's done and wrote will live on beyond his death and be carried on from generation to generation. Very interesting there. And so that again points to the fact that what Paul is teaching here is setting a precedent for the future beyond 70 AD. And that the things that he's binding upon Gentile Christians was not just things for that pre-70 generation. It was things that were destined to continue beyond 70 AD uh, because it was supposed to be given to faithful men who would be able to teach others also beyond uh, the end time. Okay, I think that's uh, something that that will help us as we look at what the book of Acts is doing. We'll see Apostle Paul as he really engages in that effort of trying to build a solid foundation for the church of all ages to come. 
here we are in 54 AD uh, when Paul is beginning his third missionary journey. And it says, after he revisited the churches in Galatia and Phrygia, in Acts chapter 18, verse 23, he went on then to Ephesus, where he stayed for about three years. He sent Timothy and Erastus to Macedonia, and that would be Philippi probably, as well as Thessalonica and Berea. There's three churches there in Macedonia. And we noted in times past that uh, Luke stayed in Philippi quite a while, while Paul and the other traveling companions, Paul and Silas, went on to Thessalonica and Berea, and then Paul went on from there to Athens and Corinth. So uh, Paul then is uh, sending Timothy and Erastus to Macedonia while he stayed in Ephesus for that three years. Gaius and Aristarchus were with Paul in Ephesus. Then he later on went to Macedonia and Achaia, and his traveling companions are listed in, in Acts chapter 20, verse 4. Now, here's something I think would be encouraging or inter interesting for all of our uh, listeners, uh, and that is the idea that Paul carried a lot of people with him on his missionary journeys. And especially on this third journey, it seemed like he had a good half a dozen or more guys with him. And he's sending them as couriers all over the place, sending messages to the churches, telling them about his soon arrival or or uh, uh, telling them where he's going and receiving, uh, uh, you know, or sending thank yous to them uh, for their help in supporting him in his travels, etc. But there's a lot of courier activity, and he used those followers and that went along with him as couriers to communicate with the churches. And it seems also that some of those uh, people that traveled with him, like Luke for sure, uh, were scribes. And that may explain why Luke stayed in Philippi on his uh, second missionary journey, so that Luke could make some copies of some of those letters, etc., that that were being written or taken with him, such as the Gospels. Uh, if Matthew and Mark had been written before Paul's second missionary journey, uh, then Luke would have had those with him, and he may have copied, made copies of those for some of the churches in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and other places. So uh, there's a lot of reasons why Paul carried those guys with him took them with him on his trips. Uh, they were couriers. They were also teachers and uh, fellow preachers, evangelists, and scribes to help them in the writing and uh, distribution of all of his letters and other documents that were produced by all the apostles. Okay, so here on the third journey, uh, from Ephesus, he traveled to Philippi, which is in Macedonia, and then to Achaia. Then he returned back through Philippi, and then to Troas, uh, and then where they caught a ship there from Troas, sailed to Assos, and then Mytilene, Chios, Samos, and finally to Miletus, where they got off the ship, and he called the elders to him from Ephesus, where they uh, gave them their last uh, bit of communications. Paul tells them he'll never see them again in person. And that was uh, grievous to the saints there at Ephesus. They hated to hear that. But Paul was on his way to Jerusalem, and he knew that there was something going to happen there. Every place he went told him that uh, something awaited him there in Jerusalem. He didn't know exactly what. But he suspected it was bonds and uh, imprisonment and perhaps other grief. Oh, and then they uh, traveled from Miletus then down to uh, the lower part of Turkey there, Kos and Rhodes and Patara, and then went on past Cyprus to Tyre, and then went down to Ptolemais, and then finally another short boat hop to Caesarea. And from there, they traveled up by foot uh, to Jerusalem, where he 
was arrested at the end of his journey in 58 AD. So that was a real quick survey of all the places he visited during that four years of his third missionary journey. From the time he began until the time he ended up in Jerusalem, it was four years almost exactly because he left in the spring of AD 54 and ended up in Jerusalem in the spring of 58. Okay, while Paul was on this third missionary journey, in fact, right after he embarked on it, uh, about four or five months into the journey, probably while he was at Ephesus, maybe soon after he arrived in Ephesus, after going through the area of Galatia and Phrygia, uh, on October the 13th, boy, what an unlucky day for the death of an emperor. October the 13th of 54 AD, Claudius uh, Caesar was poisoned supposedly by his wife Agrippina, who was the mother of Nero. She thought since her son Nero was 17 year old now, he was ready to be emperor. So she poisoned Claudius to get her son Nero on the throne because she had pretty much uh, a lot of influence on him, and so she thought she could run the empire through her son Nero, and so she got rid of her husband Claudius. And then she bribed the military commanders there in the Praetorian Guard to proclaim her son Nero as emperor instead of Britannicus, who was the real legitimate son and heir to the throne. Uh, Dio Cassius, Tacitus, and Josephus all mention the death of Claudius. Uh, and I've got the references here in, in the outline, the PDF, uh, so don't need to write all this stuff down. Uh, just get the PDF later and you'll have all the references to that. I'd also recommend reading the story about all this in uh, Warmington's book uh, with the title Nero, Reality, and Legend. Uh, he talks quite a bit about the poisoning of of Claudius and uh, the uh, setting up and bribing of uh, Nero to get into power. It's interesting that Nero talks later in his life about uh, poison mushrooms as being food of the gods. And uh, that supposedly was how Claudius died, was he was fed some poisonous mushrooms so, interesting that Nero had heard the story about that. It, it, at least it seems like he had, um, referring to his adopted father uh, being killed by poison mushrooms. Okay, so Nero begins his reign on October the 13th of 54 AD, while Paul was in Ephesus on his third missionary journey. And news like that traveled pretty fast. You can bet it would not have been much more than a, a week before news like that would have reached Ephesus. Uh, they had special ways to communicate through light signals at night and smoke signals and stuff like that uh, where they could signal the death of an emperor right away. And so it wouldn't take long for news about Claudius' death to reach uh, outlying areas, especially Ephesus, because it's not that far away. Uh, they could easily send signals and, and boat and fast runners uh, to carry that message uh, that over into Greece. So it would not be long before Paul would have heard about this new emperor, Nero, uh, beginning his reign. Now, it's interesting that Nero's real name was Lucius Domitius Anobarbus. And in Ken Gentry's book, Before Jerusalem Fell, uh, on page 49 in the footnote 16, he tells us that Nero's name was Domitius Nero. And the family name is, of course, first, Domitius. That was his family name. In this section of Gentry's book, he mentions the confusion that Irenaeus had regarding his mention of Domitian in connection with John's writing of the book of Revelation. 
Gentry also talks about Nero's original name in his book on the beast on pages 14 and 15, where he says, Lucius Domitius Anabarbus, better known by his adoptive name, Nero Caesar. The father of Nero was Aeneas Domitius Anabarbus. His mother was Agrippina, the younger, sister of Emperor Gaius Caligula, and niece of the Emperor Claudius. Nero was born on December the 15th, A.D. 37, just nine months after the death of Emperor Tiberius. The name Anobarbus meant redbeard. And, of course, the Domitius was his family name. Uh, he had all of his uh, father, grandfather, etc., were of that same family of Domitius. Nero was born, by the way, the same year as Josephus was. And so they were, they had that in common. That would probably be something of a, of a little bit of a bond between them. Uh, later on, when Josephus becomes chummy with uh, one of Papea's uh, theatrical uh, mimes or poets or whatever uh, in the court there in Rome... Uh, Papaya was Nero's wife, and Josephus had connections through his shipwreck. Uh, he met a, a guy that was a good friend of Papaya's, and through that connection, he was able to get the ear of Nero and get uh, the release of some priest that he was sent to Rome to get freed. But Nero was born the same year as Josephus. Several scholars who believe that Irenaeus was referring to Nero, not Domitian, when Irenaeus said that John was still alive toward the end of the reign of Domitianu. This is an adjective form of Domitius, which is Nero's family name, and not the nominative form of Domitian's name, which would instead be Domitianicos. If it was a reference to, to Domitian, it would most likely follow the form of proper names which had the definite article. Since Irenaeus does not use the definite article and uses an adjective form of it, which is a family name, it would seem more likely that he's referring to Nero of the family of Domitius rather than to the more formal imperial name of Domitian. And that's argued in uh, uh, Gentry's book, Before Jerusalem Fell, page 49, and also in the Beast of Revelation, pages 14 and 15. As we noted, uh, even before Nero began his reign, Judea already had a lot of problems with bandits, false prophets, and rebels. I mean, we've already seen some of that in our past studies. Uh, but it's only going to get worse and worse as time progresses on. We're getting down into the last um, 12 years here before the outbreak of the revolt. And we're going to really see things speed up here and get pretty intense and lots more of these uh, false prophets appear on the scene, lots more bandits and rebels roaming the countryside, uh, plundering and uh, stirring up interest in the revolt. Apostle Paul was in Ephesus on his third journey at the time Nero ascended the throne in Rome. Not long after this, in AD 55, Aristobulus, who's the son of Herod of Chalcis, received the kingdom of Lesser Armenia from Nero. Now, you may ask, what in the world that has to do with uh, anything in Judea? That's a good question. But what it does show is that uh, Nero had control over these things. And when he came to power, it was the custom for the new emperor to make all these new appointments. And he, so he was free to dispose of anybody who was in the cabinet positions and, and other 
areas of appointed government officials, uh, he was able to make new appointments, put all of his cronies in there. You know, that's what they call crony capitalism or crony uh, dictatorship. Uh, here we see Nero appointing all the people who paid him for that position. You know, not long ago, what was it? The uh, uh, the mayor of Chicago uh, took some bribes to appoint certain people into uh, the Senate to replace some Democratic people who were who were killed or or, or who uh, died in office. Uh, that kind of stuff is not new. Uh, it was going on all the way back as far as we have history, especially in Nero's reign. He took a lot of bribes and put a lot of people into power as a result of those bribes. He enriched himself. Uh, Agrippa II received four more cities from Nero. Uh, Agrippa was a very good friend of Nero's uh, because he was a good friend of Claudius. And uh, so that, that friendship with the whole Claudian family carried over with Nero. And so Agrippa was given four more cities to add to his collection. And those four cities represented actually 14 little small villages, all of which paid their tribute to Agrippa II. And then he would give a bribe back to Nero a portion of that, uh, probably the lion's share of it went back to Nero, but Agrippa certainly kept his own good portion of it to enrich himself. Okay, uh, so that's the kind of stuff that was going on all throughout the empire right after Nero became the new emperor. You see a lot of new government officials being appointed, not only in Rome, but all over, uh, even in Judea as well. Okay, in AD 56 now, uh, we, in Judea, we see a lot of false prophets and uh, rebels appearing on the scene. Uh, one of them by the name of the Egyptian is even mentioned in our book of Acts here. Uh, we'll see that right after Apostle Paul was arrested in 58 AD, uh, they the guy, the Roman Lysias, I believe, the, the guy that was arresting and, and imprisoning Paul there, uh, was surprised that Paul knew Greek uh, and knew Hebrew as well uh, because he thought Paul might be that Egyptian that raised up a, uh, a rebellion a couple years before that here in 56 A.D., during the rule of Felix, which is in going on right now, uh, and I think Felix was appointed in 54 by Nero. Um, I'm not sure. don't have that right here in my notes. Uh, 53. He was appointed, I guess, by Claudius just before Nero became in power. Uh, and so he was, in, he was ruling Judea as procurator, the tax procurator for Nero at this time in 56 AD, and he was very careful to try to put down all these uh, renegades and rebels and imposters and false prophets and deceivers and rebellion, uh, uh, re rebellious uh, messianic figures that tried to stir up uh, a revolt. Felix was pretty careful about putting all those down as rapidly as he could uh, but he used some of them for his own benefit, as did later procurators, uh, especially Florus. Florus would even accept bribes from those rebels. As long as he got his share of their booty, uh, he'd let them roam the countryside and plunder at, at will. Uh, but Felix doesn't do that. Felix is fairly responsible in his procuratorship here except for the Sicarii. Uh, he did bribe some of them to uh, do some dirty work for him. But this Egyptian guy gathered up a small army and came to Jerusalem to oust the Romans and take over the governorship of, 
of the country. But Felix sent his army and killed 400 of them, captured another 200, and then dispersed the rest. And, of course, the, the 200 that he captured, I'm not sure what happened to them. I suspect they were probably sent to the copper mines or to the galley ships or to the uh, uh, theaters and arenas or Colosseum in Rome to be used in gladiatorial com- contest or fight with a wild beast, etc. They, I'm sure they didn't have a very comfortable rest of their life. Egyptian escaped, however. He was not caught by Felix and did not appear anymore. And this occurred just a couple years before Apostle Paul was arrested. And it was still fresh on their minds, and that's why the Roman commander asked Paul if he was that Egyptian, because the Egyptian had escaped. Felix was not able to capture him. And this is all discussed in Antiquities as well as the Wars, both. Uh, if you're interested, the references are here in the PDF that you can get after, after it's posted on the uh, website. So here's another incidence of wars and rumors of wars, and they're becoming much more frequent now. We're going to be hearing a lot more about these things in coming uh, uh, lessons. Something else that happened during this time that Paul was on his third missionary journey, and probably while he was just about ready to leave Ephesus, or maybe after he had just left Ephesus and headed over to uh, Macedonia, uh, there was a disturbance at Caesarea in Palestine. The city of Caesarea was almost evenly divided in population between Jews and Greeks. And the Greeks there were Syrians, but they were Greek in culture and language. And both parties, uh, both the Jews and the Greeks, wanted control of the city. It's kind of like it is here in America right now. We've got about a 50-50 split between progressives and conservatives. And uh, both of them want control of the government. And it doesn't bode well for this next election. I think we're going to have some problems. Uh, If uh, some certain folks don't get their way, they may just uh, revolt. And I'm not talking about the conservatives. I'm talking about the... uh, the progressives. They have been known in the last year or two, whenever they didn't get their way out in what was it, Minnesota or Wisconsin, they, the uh, senators, state senators and state representatives left the state so that they couldn't be in state and take participation in the, in the vote that they didn't want to vote for. They didn't want to be a part of it. They left the state. I mean, that's pretty childish con- conduct, any way you slice it. If uh, any conservatives had ever done something like that, man, you'd never hear the end of it. They've been taken the task, ousted from their position in the government, and uh, never be able to get in any position again the rest of their life. But somehow these progressives and liberals can get away with that. But they would never let the conservatives get the, get away with it. But that's the kind of stuff that was going on in Caesarea in 57 A.D., just before Paul uh, ends up his missionary trip uh, while he's still over in uh, either Macedonia or on the boat on his way back. uh, There was a disturbance in Caesarea. And both parties wanted to control the city, and the Jewish community was more wealthy But the Greeks were better positioned politically in control of the prime real estate of the city. And there was constant friction back and forth between the Jews and the Greeks there in Caesarea. And it eventually came to a violent clash. In 57 AD, the Jews gained the upper hand in the struggle, but Felix brought his... uh, his uh, troops down into the middle of it and put a stop to it. And that didn't satisfy the Jews. Uh, they, they kept on fighting, even though after uh, Felix intervened, uh, they went ahead and kept on fighting. And so Felix was forced to slay a bunch of them 
Josephus says he slew a great many of them. I don't know how many that great many is, but uh, it's probably a hundred or more. But this did not end the conflict either. Uh, The Jews appealed to Caesar for a definitive decision, thinking that they had Nero's favor, uh, but they didn't. So Felix chose representatives from both sides of the dispute to go to Rome and argue their case before Nero. However, Nero decided in favor of the Greeks and the Syrians. And the Jews didn't like that. They didn't accept that at all. And so trouble would again eventually flare up in 66 AD, uh, just nine years later. And it was that additional flare-up in 66 AD, which Josephus says was the cause of the revolt. And it all started back here in 57 when the Jews and the Greeks uh, got into a tussle and went to Rome to try to settle it. But this example of Jews who had Roman citizenship appealing to Caesar in AD 57 must have been fresh on the mind of Felix and Festus one year later when Paul, imprisoned there in Caesarea, asserted those same Roman privileges against his fellow Jews. Uh, and that's what happened. Uh, the, the Jews and the, the Greeks both appealed to Caesar for their case, and that's what Paul does when he's in Caesarea in prison. No doubt he was aware of that idea, and he had already been told by God in a dream that he would go to Rome anyway, so he already knew he was going to go to Rome, and evidently he figured out how that was going to take place by appealing to Caesar for a decision, because he didn't want to go back to Jerusalem, that's for sure. He knew he'd be killed there. So he appealed to Caesar to settle his case rather than go back to Jerusalem to certain death. Noted earlier, at the end of Paul's second journey, that there was not as much anti-Gentile sentiment in Jerusalem at that time, and that's 53 or 54 AD, as there was here at the end of his third missionary journey in AD 57 or 58. And the reason for that is because of these tensions here in in Caesarea. That was causing uh, a lot of tension, not only in Caesarea, but all throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria. Tensions were running very high because of of the way the Jews had been treated in Caesarea, how how many of them had been killed, probably a hundred or more of them had been killed. That just did not make for a very... Uh, comfortable situation. And so here Paul is coming into Judea right after all these uh, conflicts had occurred. And you can see how that would have had some influence on the way he's treated by those Judaizers in Jerusalem. You can see why they brought up charges against Apostle Paul. These are Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, Judaizers, and they were bringing charges against Paul. Why? Because they didn't like Gentiles uh, coming into the church without circumcision and law-keeping, and they didn't like Apostle Paul going out there because they thought he was teaching even the Jewish Christians not to continue keeping the law. And so they were determined to wipe Paul out and get him out of the picture. He was an embarrassment and a concern to them, especially since they saw their nation being persecuted by Gentiles. They were not real comfortable with with the apostle to the Gentiles hobnobbing with them there in Jerusalem. So Paul is... Uh, Beginning to feel the heat now at the at the end of his third missionary journey after this uprising in Caesarea, things are not as friendly and as rosy in Jerusalem as he 
has experienced in the past. The tensions in the church in Jerusalem were almost certainly increased by this violent uprising in Caesarea in 57, just before Paul arrived. Josephus indicates that it was this very event in Caesarea which fanned the flames of revolt later in uh, 66 AD. The zealots began to be much more vocal and active at this time, and rumors of war are beginning to circulate in the air at a much more frequent and much more intense uh, situation. So, uh, Michael, are you uh, still with us here? Yes, sir. Did you have a comment that you wanted to make on that before we move on here? Uh, no, no, I'm good, thanks. Did I? Uh, I'm a drink of water here while you uh, make a comment, if you want. Yeah, absolutely. No, you know what? It, uh, this history Ed, that you have been teaching through here on uh, ad70.net for the last, gosh, how long has it been now? 15, I'm trying to think. It was summer of 2010, I believe it was, that we started that. So we're coming up on two years of teaching on this program then and now. And uh, again, this this is just invaluable history that most people are unaware of within Christianity. And uh, you know what? I, I think it's going to be a wonderful thing, Ed, when we get to that point where we have two, three, four, five years worth of teaching on the historical aspects of what was going on in Israel's history that other people just aren't doing. Yeah, once we get through with the stuff up to 70 AD, then I want to go into that first generation after 70 AD. You know, the first 50 years or maybe 60 years after 70 AD, a first full generation for mm-hmm. sure. Uh, you know, look at what Papias and Polycarp and Ignatius and Hegesippus, and maybe even Justin Martyr had to say and uh, try to make sense of that and why they did not understand the past fulfillment of all these things. Uh, I think that's a fascinating study, and it will challenge us. Uh, and we're developing our historical reconstruction skills before we get there. You know, that's, that's the purpose of all this work that we're doing here in the book of Acts. Right. Reconstructing history uh, so that when we get to the period after 70 AD, uh, we'll have a lot less material, at least biblical material, to deal with. And so we'll have to have better skills to uh, reconstruct the history of the church. I think. Definitely think it's very interesting, though, that when you look at early church history, you know, after, say, the uh, the second century onwards, you know, if if there was this idea of a, a premillennial end that was coming, you know, near and dear to them in each successive generation, we've got a major problem because these guys had very much a mentality of occupying and building and, and building up this Christian kingdom throughout the world. You know what I mean? Yep. You know, and what's... Interesting, and one of the reasons why I'm going to be redating the four apostolic father epistles, uh, that's Barnabas, uh, Didache, Clement, and Hermas, uh, those four, they, they're the four that have the, those intense time statements in them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, our critics use those against us and say, look at here, these guys are written after 70 AD, but they still have the same kind of intense time statements that the last few epistles of our New Testament have. Right. And how do you explain that? Well, the way we explain it is we redate them before 70. Hmm. And the evidence for that is because internally they show the same kind of intensity and eminency that the last few books of our New Testament show. Now let me ask you a real quick question here, Ed, and I know we've only got a couple minutes left, and you may have to address this next week. You know, the idea of this continual spiritual battle that's been going on from, you know, the earliest times in the garden, uh, you know, the spirit of Christ versus the spirit of Antichrist, I think is the term I like to use. You know, this idea of the spirit of Antichrist didn't, uh, you know, disappear in the first century. And so, you know, we, we still today see a continual battle of, you know, this spirit of Christ versus the spirit of Antichrist even going on. Now, is it possible that these early church fathers... You know, in talking, I mean, were they looking for an eschatological end? Because a lot of them commented on AD 70, and it sure sounded like they understood that that's what Jesus was talking about in the Olivet Discourse. Yet they were still looking for some kind of 
future end? Well, I think there's a lot of confusion and chaos after 70 AD. And uh, we're going to look at that, you know, as we get to that period of time. We'll talk about that. But the main reason I'm dating those four Apostolic Father writings before 70 is so that we can do an end run around that whole debate. Hmm. Because it's it's only those who take a post-70 date for the Apostolic Fathers that have to deal with that problem. And I'm going to bypass that completely by showing from internal evidence that those four Apostolic Father writings, Barnabas, uh, Didache, Clement, and uh, Hermas, were all written before 70 A.D., That'll, you'd be amazed how many problems that solves. Right. You redate them that way. And we'll be looking at that eventually. I want to get through 70 AD first. Uh, we've got about another 12 years to go before mm-hmm. we're uh, through with all this history. And this is going to be the most exciting part of it. Uh, we're just about into the thick of it here. So right. buckle your seatbelts. Giddy up. Get ready. Hold on tight. Add your email address in case anybody has any questions. Preterist1 at preterist.org. Alrighty, my friend. Well, we will see you back here next time with another edition of Then and Now. God bless you. Thank you. You are tuned to listener-supported AD70.net. We are Christian Radio from a slightly different point of view, putting sanity back into Christianity each and every day. If you'd like to help us take this message of fulfillment to the uttermost parts of the earth, you can do so by heading over to our website, ad70.net, and clicking on the support tab located on the left-hand side of the page. You can also get a copy of this and all of our previous live broadcasts for free by simply pointing your browser to the podcast. God bless. We'll see you back here next time.